Well, good afternoon, everyone. How are you? Doing okay? Welcome to Parkview. My name is Ray Kolbacher. I'm the senior pastor here. And I want to give a shout out to those in the, in the lobby in our overflow. I see you out there. Thank you for coming. Um, I'm glad you're all here. Uh, you know, all around our, uh, our nation today, people are going to be gathering together, um, various locations, eating good food, having a drink, singing some songs, exchanging gifts, lighting candles, sort of basking in the haze of Christmas nostalgia, uh, enjoying the warm, sentimental side of the holiday, which is wonderful. We all love it. But along with the emotional side of things, it just seems to me we should always take a moment to engage the rational side of things as well. Because when it comes to Christmas, uh, there's, there's an awful lot to think about. For instance, you guys realize that Christmas is the only Christian holy day that is also a major secular holiday? Arguably our culture's biggest, with somewhere between 90 and 95% of Americans observing it in some way, shape, or form? It's true. As a result, uh, we essentially have two different celebrations going on all around us, celebrations observed by men and women from all walks of life. It's, it's a quite, uh, quite an interesting phenomenon if you think about it. I mean, religious people can't help but notice how more and more and more of the public festivities surrounding Christmas uh, intentionally avoid any reference to its Christian origins. It's just about having a holly jolly Christmas. On the other hand, irreligious people can't help but find the spiritual meaning of it sort of intruding on their holiday uh, celebration by way of story, by way of classic carols like uh, Joy to the World with the lyrics proclaiming, born to give them second birth, whatever that may mean, some people wonder. Now, I'm assuming in being here that you're engaging with the spiritual side of Christmas, or at least you're open to it, and focusing some of your attention on Jesus, which is good. It's just not, you know, it's just not everybody's deal. When it comes to spiritual matters, some people tend not to give much thought at, uh, of Jesus at all, even, even in December. Um, there's those in our culture who say, man, I love Christmas. I love Christmas as much as the next person, but what's the point of thinking too seriously about Jesus? I mean, nobody can really know anything about God. That's a faith issue. You can't prove anything one way or another. I'm not into faith. I'm into facts. But there's a logical problem with that approach to life because, uh, I mean, what is faith anyway? Faith is, faith is a way of talking about beliefs uh, that we can't fully prove, yet we commit ourselves to them and base our lives on them, which means... We're all faith-oriented creatures, every single one of us, no exceptions. Even agnostics have faith. They have faith that agnosticism is true. Atheists have faith. They have faith that atheism is true. The fact is there are no neutral positions when it comes to beliefs. We all have them, every one of us. Life is all about faith. Now just imagine a holiday conversation between two friends where one, one guy says, you know, I believe Jesus changed the course of history because he was deity in the flesh. He was... He was the Savior who comes to offer forgiveness and reconciliation with God and eternal life to those who believe. And the second guy says, well, you know, I can't, I can't accept that. I don't believe you can know anything definite about God, and no one should try to persuade others to see things their way when it comes to faith. It's an interesting conversation. Uh, the irony of the conversation um, comes when the second guy claims that no one can know anything definite about God, because what is he doing? He's He's articulating his belief. He's making his own definitive faith statement. It's not scientific. It can't be proven empirically. And when he asserts nobody should try to persuade others to accept their beliefs, he's doing the very thing that he's arguing against. He's attempting to convince someone of his opinion. So here's the point. Both people in the conversation uh, have faith, both of them. 
Both are basing their lives on something they believe. The second guy is banking his life and eternity on, on the idea that nobody can know anything definitive about God, which is exactly why the Apostle John wrote some of the things that he did for people like this. In the opening section of his biography on Jesus, the Apostle John declares this. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. I'm guessing that most of us in the room, uh, most of us know that Jesus had 12 disciples who he was very close to. Uh, However, John and Jesus were particularly close. And after spending three full years together, nearly 24-7, I'm pretty confident there there was no one else in that group who knew Jesus better than John. And what does John tell us about his close friend Jesus? Obviously, he tells us his friend was worthy of a biography, right? And he begins the biography by asserting what? That Jesus was divine, right? He says, he says, in the beginning was the word eternal. The word was with God. The word was God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. See, the story of Christmas that we've come to celebrate together isn't just a sweet fairy tale about a cute, cuddly baby. It's not a schmaltzy metaphor Uh, meant to illustrate how we should all wish harder for peace on earth. It's a claim. It's a claim that something eternally significant happened in this world to alter human history. John says it happened with Jesus, to Jesus, and through Jesus. Let's not forget, the baby in the manger grew up. We don't don't have time to go into all the details, but that grown-up Jesus claimed to be God on earth which leaves us only a few options of interpretation. Either Jesus was insane, although the sanity, the wisdom, and the morality of his teaching seem to contradict that. So either he was insane, or he was a a deliberate liar and a crook, which his life of poverty and innocent death seemed to deny. Or Jesus was who he claimed to be, deity in the flesh. Which is it? Which is it? Insanity, deception, or divinity? Well, John, Jesus' closest friend, says he was divine. God in the flesh. And John maintained that until the day he died, despite relentless persecution and life imprisonment. You know, I have a, uh, I have a, group, of, a group of close friends, three guys, that I meet with every week. Uh, we've been doing it for years. And these are well-educated, successful guys. They're good husbands, good fathers, godly men. I love them dearly. But I would never, ever call any one of them divine. And I'm quite sure they'd never label me that way. Now, granted, none of us have ever claimed to be deity in the flesh, which is probably a good thing, right? So for us, it's a moot point. But here we have this guy, John, whose best friend claimed to be the son of God, deity come to earth, and he asserts that it was true. In fact, he says, I and many others, we know it's true. Because why? We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father. Later on in a letter that John wrote to the early church, he put it this way. He says, that which was from the beginning, in other words, that which was eternal, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked at and our hands have touched, we testify and proclaim to you, Jesus. Make no mistake, in both instances, John is saying to his audience, he's saying, look, what I'm writing to you is not, it's not chicken soup for the soul. This is not meant to make you feel warm and fuzzy. These aren't entertaining anecdotes or spiritual parables for you to pass along. What I'm telling you, John says, what I'm telling you happened. I was there. I knew the real Jesus. He was my friend. I saw him. I heard him. I walked with him. I talked with him. I touched him. 
I witnessed his life. I witnessed the miracles. I saw them. I saw him arrested. I witnessed the trial, the crucifixion, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And I'm writing all of this to you so you can know the facts about him and decide for yourselves what to believe. But I am telling you, John says, I'm telling you, Jesus was divine, deity in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, as the prophets predicted. And then he describes Jesus as being full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. That, that's interesting. What does that actually mean? Well, some of you know the Greek term that we translate grace basically means unmerited or unearned favor. But there's a, um, there's a greater nuance to the term that's often lost in translation. See, in the original Greek, and, and therefore in the scriptures, grace doesn't simply mean granting favor to someone you owe nothing. It's more. Grace means granting favor to someone to whom you owe the opposite. You know, does that make sense? Uh, think of it this way. Imagine you're downtown Michigan Avenue uh, in Chicago. You're, you're doing some last-minute Christmas shopping, and a, um, a homeless person approaches you and asks you for help. And so you give them a couple bucks. Uh, you're not obligated to do that. Uh, you don't owe them anything. But you freely help them. Is that grace? Not exactly. Not, not fully. Because grace goes further than that. Here's what the fullness of grace looks like. It's when you go to that same person on the street who's, who's actually been mean to you, berating you, harassing you, kicking at you, punching at you, swearing at you, spitting at you. They deserve your, your retribution. They deserve your hostility. They deserve litigation. But they are in need. And so you give them the opposite of what they deserve. You help them. You, you give them not just enough money to meet their need, but more than enough to solve their problems. That is grace. You see the difference? Grace doesn't just give you what you don't deserve. It gives you the opposite of what you deserve. Instead of hate, love. Instead of retribution, mercy. Instead of judgment, forgiveness. Instead of death, life. John says, in and through Jesus, God has offered us the fullness of his grace. The Apostle Paul, when he was describing Jesus, he said, grace has appeared to us. The Apostle Peter, when he described Jesus, said, grace has come to us. Do you understand the implications? John, Matthew, Paul, Peter, they, they all tell us that Christianity, biblical Christianity, is not about you and me as flawed, rebellious human beings. It's not about you and me struggling to find our way and make our way to God and somehow through our effort and our, our good works earn his favor and his forgiveness. No, it's not about us making our way to God. Christianity is about God coming to us. How out of love he, he has unexpectedly taken the initiative and intentionally moved in our direction, offering us the fullness of his grace, the very opposite of what we deserve. And so John says, Jesus, he was full of, he was full of grace and he was full of truth. And just so you know, the Greek term for truth here means more than honest words. It carries the idea of certainty. It carries the idea of reality. In short, Jesus not only spoke the truth of God's grace, but his life and his death demonstrated the reality of it, the certainty of it. He came and accomplished what we as human beings cannot. He lived the perfect life we could never live. And he died the death we deserve to die. It is his performance, it's his good work, it is his sacrifice that solves our problems and purifies our sin and our failures before our creator. And that, my friends, is what makes the good news of Jesus so incredibly good. 
Later on in his biography, John summarizes it this way. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave, he gifted his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him and accepts him shall not, ha- shall not perish but have eternal life. Now that's a pretty famous statement. You've probably heard it before. And uh, as I was reading it again this week, you know, I just realized how in so many ways Christmas is, is really all about receiving gifts, isn't it? It's about receiving gifts. And le- but let's face it, some gifts, some gifts can be hard to accept because... Because by their very nature, they require us to swallow our pride. Like, like this, imagine if tomorrow, imagine if tomorrow I open, a, I open a gift from one of the guys I meet with every week. He gives me a gift, I open it up. It's a book titled, uh, Losing Weight the Easy Way. Hmm. Okay. And then I open a second gift from one of the other guys, and it's a book titled, Egocentric People, How Not to Be One. What does that mean? Some may suggest I, I need new friends. It means I need new friends, possibly. Uh, no, it means that if I accept the books and I say, guys, thanks for the gifts, then on some level it's admitting that I'm both out of shape and apparently obnoxious sometimes, which is probably true. In other words, some good gifts are hard to receive because to do so is to admit we have flaws and we have weaknesses and we need help. But that's true of every single one of us. And understand, there's never been a gift offered that requires us to swallow our pride more than the gift of Jesus. To accept him, to receive him, is to humbly admit, as human beings, we are so, we are so lost and we're so messed up, sinfully messed up and broken, that we're unable to help ourselves. We can't do it. We just can't do it. Nothing less than God himself can save us. You know, for the past 150 years or so, Secular philosophers and sociologists have touted the innate goodness of humanity and have proposed that all of our world's problems and social evils can be solved by way of better education, economic aid, new laws, greater government policies and oversights, etc., etc. Yet it's not happening. It's not happening. In fact, current research indicates a growing majority of people don't buy it. They're not buying it. Therefore, they don't believe that the future can or will be better than the past. A belief experts refer to as optimism bias. It's on the decline. Why? Because people are losing hope. They're becoming increasingly pessimistic. And I get that. I'm thinking we all get that to a point. I mean, look around. It is a messed up, broken, weary world we live in. A world where, just as we've seen again this week, it's filled with hate and violence and war, racism, terrorism, greed, injustice, crime, deceit, corruption. All of it played out day after day after day, reported to us ad nauseum via newspaper, periodicals, radio, TV, internet, and social media. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I just sit back in the chair and I'm saying, I'm thinking to myself, man... How bad do things need to get before we're willing to recognize and admit that we need help? As human beings, we need help. And ultimately, the message of Christmas is that true help, true hope for the world, cannot originate within the mess. It must come from, some, uh, it must come from outside the mess. It necessitates divine intervention. And the Apostle John is informing us that that intervention has come through divine incarnation. The the Word was God, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. The Son who came from the Father, full of grace 
and truth. That's what John, Jesus' closest friend, tells us. But hey, don't just take John's word for it. Consider history. Consider history. I mean, despite his humble birth and relatively short, simple life, over the past 2,000 years, Jesus has, he has transformed individuals, couples, families, communities, cultures, and nations. He's inspired people from, of all races and from every walk of life to give up their possessions, their, their, their finances, their safety, their comfort, their careers, their lives, all for his cause. The instrument, uh, the instrument of execution upon which he met his death, the cross, has become the most recognized symbol in the world. Even down through history, when people have wanted to do bad things, have in some cases used his name to hide behind as an excuse for their actions. There's no denying it. It's happened. But the fact is more good has, been, has come in his name than bad. Because of Jesus, hospitals and orphanages have been established all around the world. More books have been written, more more education encouraged, more food and water distributed, more poverty relieved, more slaves set free, more justice carried out, more expressions of great art and beauty created, all because of him. He stirred the thinking of of brilliant minds, inspired the founding of great universities, Oxford, Cambridge, Harvard, Princeton, Yale. And speaking of Yale, their famed Scholar and historian Dr. Jaroslav Palikin in his well-known book titled Jesus argues it this way. He writes, regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus has been the most dominant figure in the history of Western culture for 20 centuries. It boggles the mind that the movement he began isn't just remembered, it's not just studied, not just continued. It's growing, it's spreading on every continent, generally faster than ever before. What are the odds? It's from his birth that most of the human race dates its calendars, It's by his name, millions curse, and in his name, billions pray. Now, with all that being true, I mean, don't you agree? It just just makes sense to stop for a second and think about what made Jesus so surprisingly unique and impactful. You know, I've mentioned this before to you, but sometimes sometimes when when I, I hear people talk about faith, I'll inevitably hear someone say something like, well, you know, I prefer to think of God this way or that way. I prefer to think of God this way. And as I hear that, I'm saying to myself, you know, with all due respect to everyone's right to an opinion, who really cares how one prefers to think of God? That's not how things work. That's not how life works. Reality is not created or dictated by our personal preferences, not yours and not mine. I mean, let's... It's true of life. It's true of all areas of life. Let's say you're sitting at a coffee table uh, or at a, um, at a coffee shop at a table and you order a latte and they bring the latte over to you and it is scalding hot. I mean, it's like third degree burn hot. But, but you don't like waiting. So you say, well, you know, I prefer to think of this latte as an iced latte. You suck it down. You don't do that, do you? No. Instead, despite your preferences, despite your opinions, your likes, your dislikes, you submit to reality and you drink accordingly or else you burn your lips off. In other words, you don't make demands on the latte. The reality of the latte makes demands on you. Here's the point. If the God in your mind this Christmas, the God in your mind this Christmas always aligns with your preferences and your opinions and your likes and your dislikes, then that deity is one of your own making. Because the God of your imagination will never surprise you, never shock you, Never disagree with you. Never confuse you or make demands on you. Never. 
Jesus, however, does all of those things. For he is the incarnation of the true God Almighty, deity in the flesh. And therefore, there is nothing more shocking, more surprising, more confusing, more mind-boggling than the incarnation. And it does, in fact, make demands on you. It demands you believe. It demands you believe. So here's the deal. If, if you see Jesus merely as a cuddly, cute baby in some nostalgia, nostalgic story, then Christmas is a holiday. It's just a holiday. But if you accept him as the Christ, the Son of God, who he claimed to be, then it shakes you to the core, and it changes everything, and Christmas becomes a holy day. So which is it for you? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And tonight my prayer is for each and every one of you to believe and to receive by faith the grace and the truth and the great gift who is Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Father, we, um, in the midst of, of the craziness that is the holiday season, uh, I, I just pray that we would be able to take this moment, just this moment, and give you our attention and have the courage to think about what is true. That in the mess that we've created as human beings, in this mess, we cannot, we cannot solve our problems. We cannot truly help ourselves. We need help from outside the mess. We need you, our God. But intervention has come through the incarnation of Jesus, your son, who's lived the life none of us could live, the perfect life, and died the death we all deserve to die. So that through him, by faith in him, and by means of grace, we're forgiven and granted life everlasting. That is the reality of Christmas. It's what makes it not just a holiday, but a holy day for us. And so we, we want you to know we love you this, this evening. We're grateful for all that you've done for us in Jesus. And we remember him and give thanks for him tonight. In his name we pray. Jesus and redeeming grace, those two things go together. And that's the meaning of Christmas. He came to rescue us. Um, so thank you for being with us. Um, one thing, we're going to extinguish our candles in a, in a moment, and uh, we'll have receptacles in the, in the lobby as you go out. You can drop in there. Just make sure that they're actually out, or else the burlap will create a new candle that we probably don't want. You know what I'm saying? So, um, but thanks for being here. I want to invite you back. January 8th, uh, we start a new series called Why. You know, sometimes we as Christians do things we don't even know why we do them. So we're going to talk about why we do certain things as Christians, as a church, and uh, I think you'll find it really, really helpful. So we start the new year on, on January 8th, and I invite you to come back and be with us. Let me pray for us, and then we're dismissed. And now, Father, may your hand of grace and peace rest on your church, and may our lives be lived in such a way as to 
as to lift up Jesus, the Savior of the world. It's his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for being here. Merry Christmas, everybody.